Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. This is Season 1, Episode 4 of Wild Olive. Today, we're talking about how translation affects meaning and how culture affects translation. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. Good being with you again in podcast land. Exactly. It's fun to be back. Say, at the end of the last episode, we were just about to start talking about translation when we ran out of time. Let's circle back to that issue of translation. It's always fascinating to me. I have two stories about it. First, let me say that until I was in graduate school, it never occurred to me to wonder how translation into English could affect meaning when it comes to biblical literature. I only started thinking about it when I was studying for translation tests in French and Spanish as a PhD student in literature. For those tests, you get put in a room with a dictionary and a work of literature you've never seen before, and you have to do your best to translate the work into English. Anybody who has ever had to translate anything into anything knows (laughs) that it's an art and not a science. There are so many philosophies of translation. There will be words in the source language that just don't have counterparts in the target language. And there will be more than one word in the target language you might pick in attempting to capture an original meaning. So what do you do? Do you try for an exact translation, even if it sounds awkward? If you have to adjust something so that it doesn't sound stilted in English, what about those shades of meaning that you add or take away? What do you do if there's just no English word that quite captures the sense of something in the original language? Since most of the writings in the Hebrew Bible were first written down in Hebrew, and since so many consider the Bible sacred, the process of translation has been particularly fraught with complications for biblical translators. You raise a lot of interesting issues of translation in Chapter 2 of Permission Granted particularly about translations of words in the creation stories. I would really like to dig into some of that. But before we do, would you talk a little bit about the process by which we came to have the stories in, say, Genesis? Absolutely. But first, I I do want to note, kind of to your point that you were just discussing about translations, that I tend to start intro courses, at least ones that I'm doing in person, by trying to show students a glimpse of this translation conundrum, if you will. When we're talking about biblical translations, we refer to them as falling on something of a spectrum from dynamic equivalence on one end, which is to say offering as much as possible the gist of what's being described, to a formal correspondence, which is to say as close to word-for-word translation as possible. And that's all the questions you just raised fall into that spectrum of where do we land on this? And actually, that's why many people find parallel study Bibles so useful and helpful. They will show anywhere from four to eight translations side by side on a page. So you can really see how a small translation choice can make a big difference to our ears and to the meaning we take from a verse. 
So your question about how did we get the book of Genesis? And again, this is one of those big, you know, we keep touching on what were for me at least, eye-opening content and perspectives for me in seminary. And, And similar to what you were saying about not having thought about the role that translation plays in this whole conversation, I similarly hadn't spent much time thinking about how we did get the Bible as it is today prior to going to seminary. And I think many people, at least growing up in a church setting and or a temple or synagogue setting, sometimes just think of it as, you know, God gave it to us somehow, and the process it took to get there doesn't really matter much. When we look closely at a book, such as Genesis, we can see that there are collections of stories from different groups of people. What I mean is one group might talk about God using Elohim, and then another might use Yahweh Elohim or whatever, or just L. Or we can see groups that use different writing styles to tell their stories, and they might be fairly consistent within the collections that we find. And of course, people tend to put their their perspective, um, the interests of who they are, are going to be highlighted, which makes sense, right, in a different group, and the stories then that they would tell. So there's a theory referred to as the documentary hypothesis that some people talk about or learn about in seminary. And this theory is being replaced, but I think the basics of this theory still hold true. And so that's documentary hypothesis. That's what these different groups of people and the collections of writings that they collected. That's that's what I'm referring to. So starting at least as early as 1000 BCE, people started to collect stories about the history of these Hebrew people or early Israelites. We see another collection coming together another 200 years later and so forth. So. It isn't until some of the Israelite people who were carried off into exile in Babylon in the early 6th century BCE that we formally, you know, these people wove together the separate collections or sources into the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis came to the state that we have it in today during that time of exile at the beginning of the 6th century BCE. And, you know, we can see that they were trying to tell some form of a story about their ancestors to give them some identity and perhaps to claim some form of hope in their circumstances. I think that background context is so helpful Mm. in understanding what these narratives are, why people developed them and what they are, and why people preserved them so carefully Mm -hmm. and so lovingly. Mm-hmm. I do have to say, <laughs> what you've just described is a complex process with a lot of cooks in the kitchen. <laughs> um, yep. And the history of translation is another complex process that had and still has a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And I'll say a lot of disagreement about how particular words should be translated, what approach to translation to take. Some translators have suggested that certain meanings which became extremely important in English simply might not be there in the Hebrew, or there might be meanings in the Hebrew that got erased during the process of translation. I feel like I want to interject here that I don't have really a particular horse in the race about translations because I don't translate things from Hebrew into English. So I don't have a side 
that I'm on. But what all of this means for me is that I need to have a lot of humility when I am interpreting stories and I need to understand that if I'm working with an English translation, I may or may not have a firm grasp of the text. And so humility, flexibility, and an awareness that there are multiple ways of translating any one line, that's very important to me. I don't want to be over-certain about meanings that I take away. One example of a super important word that may or may not, depending on your perspective, be translated, may or may not give us the sense of what was intended in the Hebrew. What comes to mind is that word Alma from Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14. Look, the young woman is with child. So you'll school me in a moment, but I'll tell you, <laughs> I tell you my understanding is that Alma means a young woman of marriageable age, but the word really doesn't make an assertion about sexual experience or inexperience. My understanding is that bitula is the word that the Hebrew Bible uses to indicate women without sexual experience. When Isaiah was translated into Greek, though, the word the translators chose to represent Alma introduced the concept of virgin into the passage. And that's a really big change in meaning, and it had huge consequences for subsequent Christian tradition and Christian storytelling. Do you want to share some of the nuances of this? Yes, actually, it feels like you just put on the table one of the biggest <laughs> um, words or terms that is given more meaning in the English than it did have in the Hebrew, and the the implications of it are the most dramatic, in my opinion, of any of the ones that I'm aware of. So for our listeners, that, that phrase that you read, the phrase you read was just that simple phrase, look, the young woman is with child. And that young woman in the Hebrew is Alma. And that's what you were just referring to, just simply a young woman. And if the writer of Isaiah had been trying to say something about a miraculous impregnation, uh, meaning a woman who's never had sex is all of a sudden pregnant, if he'd been trying to say that, he would have used the word bitula, but he didn't. And so, yes, and what you said next is important, that for whatever reason, Greek doesn't have a distinction. So young woman or virgin, it's almost as if you can see these ancient guys not really caring about that distinction. <laughs> so both Alma and Betula in Hebrew would then be translated with Parthenos, which could mean you're trying to talk about a young woman, or it could mean you're trying to talk about a virgin or a woman who hasn't been penetrated by a man, right? So, and then that's where we talk about Matthew taking this passage in Isaiah and quoting from it and so forth and so on. So the first time I heard this, it, it, was, it felt like just a step too far. You have just put into question the virginal conception. <laughs> it just felt like too much. And that's all of this is to say, you know, for an academic or for people who didn't grow up with these scriptures, from a Christian perspective at least, there can be a lot of meaning hanging on one or two words in the Bible. So, yeah, I think the Isaiah passage should is just about a young woman who is who the two 
people involved in that exchange know of as being pregnant. And when that child that they're referring to is a certain age, this you know, the, if you keep reading it in context, they're trying to say something about at that point in time, by the time the child you know of, you know, is born and is 10 years old, blah, 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 blah. And Matthew quotes it out of context and and people misunderstand even what Matthew's doing. And that's where we get this, what what develops, even that, uh, this feels like a bit of a tangent, but even that concept of how we read Matthew as asserting that Mary was miraculously conceived, that's also not entirely what Matthew's saying. So there are layers here, layers upon layers of tradition and, and translation and, and meaning, so that, you know, Isaiah isn't trying to say what many people think it's saying, but the English translations then will lead many people to think that he was trying to say that. Mm. So that the Isaiah passage in some tra- English translation says, look, the virgin will conceive when that isn't what's going on. So I hope I haven't gone on too long about that. I think this is a really interesting example of this issue that we're trying to raise. And I think you chosen perhaps the most important way to get at that, right? How how much can hang in the balance of translation choices, not just right, not just how you read it or interpret it, but the from one language to another, a lot can be going on. Yeah, yeah. And gee whiz, right? Why not just dive right into the deep end? That's that is what <laughs> I we do like do. that about Eugene. <laughs> that is what we do. We go yep. for the jugular. Let's, why not? Um, yes. But I do want to say again, I I do understand how shocking that could potentially be for some listeners. And I want to reiterate that I don't have, I don't fight about theological issues. I just don't. Uh, my, my basic theological position is that the divine is beyond human understanding, and I am not even going to really try to nail down the edges of that because I just think it's above my pay grade. With with that issue of virgin, I I understand. So if a person, if that's important to their theology, important to their belief system, it takes a voluntary suspension of disbelief. Most of us function in a world that's shaped by a scientific paradigm. And I get it. If people want to suspend that paradigm, and for spiritual reasons of their own, think of the mother of Jesus as a person who's sexually inexperienced. I, I, I don't fight about that. I maintain a kind of a, I like to dwell in mystery. I'll, I'll put it that way. I don't, I don't try to resolve issues that seem particularly thorny to me because I'm going for an experience, not a locked down ideological system. It's the experience that concerns me. So, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Did you want to? Yeah. Well, I did just briefly because I think that's, I'm really glad you you said that. I'm glad you shared that because I think that's important. And it's one of the many reasons I think we make such a good pair here because I think what you said is lovely. And, you know, on the flip side or however you want to talk about this, for many people, the tenets of the church have been defined a particular way, and so they have agreed to agree with or go along with those tenets, born of a virgin, right, suffered under Pontius Pilate, all those different creeds. And whether people are aware of it or not, you know, there are 
just a handful of biblical passages that have been read into and misinterpreted or mistranslated to build. And and so we, if you question Isaiah 7, 14, then you don't have the need for the reading of Genesis 3 that Paul gave us. And then if you don't need those two things, then everything falls apart. And And so for people who are trying to you know, get along well in a community of faith, saying that you believe these particular things is usually a part of being a part of that community. And so here you are, Jean, trying to say, well, whatever, I'm interested in life and loving each other. And (laughs) that's, for some people, that's a little bit harder to wrap their, you know, wrap our heads around, right? So yeah, I know it could feel too loosey goosey. I I think that (laughs) my first serious spiritual formation came about in a Quaker meeting and Quakers, it's a non creedal tradition. And so I I never, um, as an adult, I was never shaped into a person who worries about creed and worries about the particulars like that. And as you know, I, mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. attend an evangelical megachurch of all things now, and but they accept me. I, <laughs> they, I don't know if they tolerate <laughs> me or accept me, but they I, I get along with them. Um, so yeah, anyway, so let's talk about another word that has yes. some real theological charge. I understand that in the very opening lines of Genesis, in the lines translated into English as the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, that's King James, or it can be translated a wind from God swept over the face of the waters, that's the New Revised Standard Version. I understand that the word translated from Hebrew as spirit is feminine. Hebrew is one of those languages like French or Spanish that has masculine and feminine nouns, and you you change words, right? You change the spelling based on whether something's masculine or feminine, but we don't have that in English. So if you translate a feminine gendered noun from Hebrew into English, you you lose that that shade of meaning. And also, I understand that there's an image of a bird in the original. I have read some scholars write that it's fair to translate that line, the spirit she moved over the water like a bird. Uh, how do you see this? This translation issue raises issues of gender and other things, right? I'll set aside the animism that we get with the bird there. We could talk about that later. But just maybe could you talk a little bit about the issue of gender? Yeah, I think this is a lovely piece to enter that part of the conversation over because God's Holy Spirit for many people today is not the same thing necessarily as what we're talking as what the Hebrew people are talking about because within a Christian framework, you know, the spirit is the third or second, second, third, third person of the Trinity. So I wanted to acknowledge that. But so to say that, yes, the spirit she moved over the water like a bird. Yes, spirit she, I think, absolutely is what could be said there and what should be said there. And I'm I'm kind of chuckling or kind of, you know, mulling over this whole thing about the spirit of God and perhaps the translators avoiding using a pronoun. I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me. But what does it do if God's spirit is actually feminine? And and I think this rubs both ways, to be honest. I I like to point out that things like this, such as spirit, 
Well, in Hebrew, the word ruach is a feminine noun. Does that mean that the Hebrew people, storytellers, thought of God as having femininity? I don't know, but they are referring to spirit, and that is a feminine noun. This can also be seen in a really interesting way, almost in a negative way, where wisdom in Hebrew is chokhmah, and wisdom is then partnered with folly. And so we have woman wisdom, but then we also have the strange woman or the woman of deception, right? And so since chokhmah is feminine, wisdom is impersonified as a female, which is lovely and empowering, you know? And wisdom is also talked about as being a part of God or part of the most important of God's creation, so forth. So it's it's really, I, I, I yeah, so it's an interesting um, entree into an element of Hebrew in this case that is perhaps is informing the way people think that we've lost in the way that's being translated. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. S- related to this. Yes. I've been recently reading the First Nations version of the New Testament, which is an indigenous translation of the New Testament. And in the same way, Europeans and Euro-Americans translate the Hebrew in ways that make sense culturally, indigenous Christians are also interested in translations that make sense culturally. And we all do this. I'm about to read the indigenous translation, which will sound strange potentially to Europeans and European Americans, but I do want to note that we all make things culturally relevant when we translate. In some ways, translation is interpretation, and I think we could also argue that translation is theological activity. In this indigenous translation of the New Testament, the translators did not take on all of the Jewish scriptures. I hope they do. I hope they're working on an indigenous Mm -hmm. translation of the First Testament. But they did translate the first creation story, and that section about spirit or wind is translated like this. The breath of the great spirit moved over the surface of the waters like an eagle brooding over her nest. And I read a long riff by Robert Alter. Robert Alter, in his recent translation, gets the bird image in there. And I've just been mm. thinking about that bird image and how if you, in the process of translation, take out the image of a bird, it changes the sense of what God is and what the creation is. And when I think of so many First Nations, indigenous religions, and of course there are a lot of different cultures. It isn't all one thing, but one of the things that a great variety of indigenous religious traditions contain is that the earth itself is alive and sacred. And if you have the eagle brooding over her nest, you retain an element of that, that creation itself is sacred. And if you take it out, then animals, the flying things, the creeping things, If you take it out, then they're not as central in 
the way the story is presented in English. And it, it just seems to me that that really makes a difference. Exactly. You know, there is much to be said, or much has been said, and about the extent to which our translations of texts, in this case the Bible, or of ideas of people over the centuries, affect the way we think about who God is. And this mm -hmm. issue of someone suggesting within the Christian tradition that God is maybe female or or God may, might not be male, this kind of an issue is a, is a nice kind of shallow end into that. Why, you know, why do I think that God is male? You think God's male mostly because your texts say that God is, you know, and yet your texts don't only say that. Look, here's a moment where that says that God is feminine, you know. Yeah. Anyway, this is so yes, I absolutely agree with your comment that this the translation of sacred writings is a theological undertaking mm. for sure. Hey listeners, this is Matt Byrne, one of the editors and producers for Wild Olive. I'm popping in with some questions for you to consider about today's material. First, if you don't read in Hebrew or Greek already, what words from the Bible do you wish you could explore in the original languages? Next, have you ever thought about how your cultural location could affect the way you read the Bible? In what communities have you been raised? And how have these communities shaped the way that you read and see the world? When you start to consider the effects of translation on the meanings of certain stories or lines, where does your mind go? Okay, now we're going to jump from theology back to gender, okay? <laughs> we'll go from theology to culture again, and we're circling back to issues of gender that we raised a little earlier in the conversation. On page 18, in Permission Granted, you note some game-changing points about the translation of the word azer. How about if I read that bit of the story and then you talk about the difficulties with translating that word azer? How do you say it in Hebrew? Is it azer, azer? Azer. Azer, yeah. <laughs> so let, let me read it. And listeners who are familiar with Bible stories will certainly recognize this moment. And then talk to us about it, because in the same way that Alma had a really profound influence on later Christian tradition, I think this story has a profound influence on gender roles in European and Euro-American cultures and, and in Christian culture. So, so here we go. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. So, would you talk to us about the word that gets translated helper? Yes, I would absolutely love to. (laughs) (laughs) But there is something else you need to say first. I can tell. I love it. I was like, oh, right. I love this so much. And I'll make this quick because we weren't planning on me talking about this. So go for it. But, you know, even in what you just read through, when I read this out loud with with people, I I try to reflect the fact that this first human that was created is not a male. The first human is a, just male, generic. And this then again becomes another really important misleading element mm. of this chapter in in most English translations. Every single one will refer to that first human here, so out of the the ground the Lord God formed every animal and brought them to the man to mm. see what he would call them. And the man gave names to all. So so I always shift it to whatever the human would would name it. That's what we would call. And whatever the human called, or I would even say whatever ha'adam, which is mm. the, the, you know, the Hebrew noun that's being used there. And I tried, I turn it even into, I say it's instead of his. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is a topic that is really important to me that people have just the translation alone has led to people believing that the first human created in this chapter was male and it wasn't and that the second human created was a woman created for men you know and there's so many layers here so let's get back to what you asked me to talk about which is that term azer or azer i actually looked it up in the hebrew and i think i've been mispronouncing it all these years i think it's more like azer but well let me also interject something i do want to get on to azer but yeah back to ha adam I've also read that it's fully appropriate to translate it earthling. Yes. Or mud creature. (laughs) Sure. Yes. That's a game changer. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think earthling is is actually kind of fun. Yeah. Because it's ha-adam is taken out of the Mm ha-adama. And by the way, adama is a feminine noun. Mm. I mean, if you want to make meaning out of gendered yeah. language. <laughs> right. It needs to be considered. Right. Yeah. And, and it can be considered as a conundrum. We don't have to yes. go all yes. reverse ideology on exactly. it. But it can be considered as a conundrum and a mystery, which is why I feel like humility is so essential in the whole process of reading biblical stories. But go on. Azer. Okay. Azer. Okay. Um, This is, as I said, one of my favorite things to talk about from Genesis 1 to 3. So the the language there, um, azer, konegdo, that's the two words that are usually translated. Here it has been translated as a helper as his partner. His partner is from the konegdo, and helper is the ezer or azer. So when it comes to understanding so let me just say that my translation of those terms is a partner as its equal mm-hmm. instead of helper as his partner. Mm-hmm. And and it's easier to maybe for some people it's easier for me to look at these visually and see them next to each other and and to think about the different nuances 
different nuances in those two phrases. For me, for many people, helper, um, helper as his partner. So my, you know, it's sidekick, right? Secondary to, whereas a partner as its equal to me makes it a little bit more clear that these two are looking each other in the eye, if mm. you will. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what the Hebrew implies. So with the Hebrew on the Azer, you know, this is the only time an Azer, Azer, it turns out to be a female. <laughs> um, all the other references in the Hebrew Bible are to God, as in when a psalmist cries out to God, my helper, right? Or when the Israelites reach out to other nations to help them when they're losing in battle. This is in my opinion, a much stronger sense of helper Mm. than the way I have heard many people in faith communities use the phrase helper or this reference or help meet, right, to translate that word. So then you have, so is this Azair, um, this is a strong help, you know, strong by the side, perhaps. And then that partner is, you know, again, that's in the Hebrew, that is a reference to someone that he will look in the eye, this human will look in the eye, and mm. you only look equals in the eye in mm. this culture. So, yeah, I I, I think this is an important nugget. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for giving me yeah. a little moment to talk about that. Yeah, you bet. Two equals, not one main character with a sidekick. Thank <laughs> right? you. Very, yes. Yeah. Critical. Very big, big change. All right. Can we also talk about, and again, you can correct my translation, tsela, rib, rather than side or half. These parts of Genesis that pertain to how men and women were created, they've had a profound impact on European and American culture. The idea of women being created from Adam's rib and the idea of the woman disobeying God's command not to eat the fruit have really shaped ideas about gender and gender roles. Our buddy, Paul of Tarsus, writes in 1 Corinthians that, quote, man was not made from woman, but woman from man, end quote, and that, quote, neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man, end quote. The gender ideology there is based on the Genesis text, and it stipulates that the man is the main event and the woman is a kind of an adjunct or a subordinate. Do you think some of this gender ideology arises from translation issues? No question. I mean, it's almost you know, absolutely. And and this this handling of mis I would say mishandling of Genesis two is why so many people think of Paul as a misogynist, right? You chose well. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, go for the jugular. Go ahead, Jennifer. Sorry. (laughs) No, but that's right. Right. His reading of Genesis 2 overlooks intentionally, consciously or not. Right. I don't know. But it overlooks what's actually happening in the story. Right. You know, it. I I, I'm past being angry at Paul every time I see him that this is what he's done because I can't spend energy being angry at him all the time, but it is the extent to which his his language has affected billions of people ha, is not lost on me, right? He skips right past that generic human at the beginning and asserts that that first person is male and absolutely overlooks what's happening in the language, which he supposedly would have been familiar with, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it isn't until we have two humans in the Hebrew version of the story that we have male and female or man and woman talked about, whereas the English you just read tells us right off the bat that to think about that first human as a man 
And that isn't what a Hebrew audience would have been hearing. But also, this idea that the second human was created for the first, you know, is also, in my very strong opinion, a misrepresentation of what the story is doing. And in fact, I just recently did a um, a short video on this very passage um, because it is it's an important passage to me to have a better, more nuanced understanding of. So, yeah. but you know, odds for the Selah bit. I I like um, what you've been referring to, what you're referencing. You know, what does it mean? What does it mean to people when they think of this? This we'll just say it in their terms: uh, a woman being created from a rib of a man. Like, what is you know that feels much more insignificant mm -hmm. than if you say from the side or right as you were referring or from the half. And I loved stumbling upon Joel Baden's relatively recent article on this, where he talks about how the language in in Genesis two there sounds very agricultural. And it sounds to him like a reference to cuttings that you take of the last harvest of the year so that you can start the, the first harvest next year. Right? Mm. You have to have these cuttings. I just, I, I don't I know why that. that just, isn't that though? It's lovely? lovely. Yeah. Right. Right. So I enjoyed his observation. And it also highlights for me that the story itself was addressing, was noting a, a cultural reference for the people receiving that story originally. I'm kind of removed from my um, farming family, so I need some help understanding this agricultural language. And that's why it's not in the typical English translation, is most people reading this don't get what that would mean to talk about the cuttings or whatever, right? Yeah. So I just... So even our English translation, again, is leaving out some of the original cultural context. Yeah, thank you. The influence of culture on translation, just I don't think we could overstate it, right? Exactly. And I also know that Will Gaffney makes the argument that Selah can be understood to mean something more like side or half, making the creation story for the earthlings more like the story of cell division, where an initial mass is divided in half to make do. Do you want to weigh in on that one? Actually, I just want to say I love that you have looked up what Will Gaffney has said about it. And I think she's a fantastic biblical scholar. I haven't read that, but I'm just going to say she's probably got something going on there when she makes that claim. I haven't, I haven't looked into it. Mm. But it also does sound to me like, you know, another ancient story about where humans came from, which mm -hmm. is Aristophanes' reference to humans starting out as two back-to-back -back paired mm -hmm. up that were split and people are spend their life finding their other half, right? Back to what, what Gaffney has said. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I have one last comment that I wanted to make about the so-called Adam's rib image. And I know we were planning to talk about rhyme and parallelism and rhythm, but I feel like this feels complete to me. We, we had a great conversation about translation and we can leave the, the issue of rhyme and other elements of Hebrew poetry, I think, till the next podcast. But I do want to also um, just ask you what you think about this interpretation that, or I don't know if it's an interpretation, it's more 
something that I've considered. And I'll just get your take on it and then we can wrap it up. So one of the things that I suggest to my students is that as much as in English, the idea of a human being made from the rib of another human, the idea of a woman being made from the rib of a man, as much as that makes it sound like the woman is an afterthought or secondary to, I want to suggest another kind of reading, which actually makes it something of a radical statement. If we think about the role of women in ancient Mesopotamian culture, like throughout the the Near East, my understanding, and maybe this is to overstate it, but my understanding is that women were thought of um, more like, I mean, they're, they're possessions, right? They're chattel, it's property. Mm-hmm. So you've got mm-hmm. your sheep, you've got your, your cattle, you've got your wives, you've got your mm-hmm. goats. Yes. And so I think for the story to suggest that a woman and a man are made from the same substance is actually radical and a step toward human rights for women, just differentiating women and wives from other kinds of animals. Do you think that's fair? I do. Absolutely. I absolutely think that's fair. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right. It um, rehabilitates that story a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Regardless of which way you're going to understand that part of the first human, right? Yeah. What does it say? They're made of the same stuff, right? Yeah. That is lovely. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. Yes. To you, be Jean, continued. Another... Yes, exactly. <laughs> this was fun. This is Matt Byrne one of the editors and producers at Wild Olive. Thank you for listening. If you like game-changing conversations about the Bible, literature, and culture, please hit subscribe and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. You contact Gene or Jennifer at genepatrol.com or jennifergracebird.com. Catch you next time!